There it is. That little pink plus sign is so unholy. That ain't no Etch-a-Sketch. This is one doodle that can't be undid, Holmes Gillett. My body, my choice. Hi, I'm Madeline, and I'm a writer and a cultural critic. I'm Dave, I'm a comedian and actor, and welcome to Genre Reveal Party. This is our podcast where we talk about TV and movies through the lens of genre, its definition, its limits, and what we can learn by exploding them. Each episode, one of us chooses a TV show or movie to discuss. There will be spoilers, partially because our goal is that you don't need to have watched the thing to enjoy the podcast. So this week, we're actually doing a double feature. Juno, the Twee 2007 movie about a pregnant teenager that helped launch the careers of Elliot Page and screenwriter Diablo Cody, as well as Kimya Dawson, who did much of the soundtrack. And then we're also going to be watching Junior, the 1994 movie that reunited twin stars Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito, as well as Emma Thompson and Frank Langella. I think it's Langella, not Langella. Whatever. Yeah, whatever. So we chose these movies because we thought it would be a funny pairing. They're very different movies, but they're both movies about pregnancies. And they have a very, um, they have very similar titles, right? But, however, we did not realize until later that they have something else in common, which is that Junior mm-hmm. was directed by Ivan Reitman, who made Ghostbusters, Twins, Kindergarten Cop, many other classic comedies. And Juno was actually directed by his son, Jason Reitman. So there's like an edible dimension to this. It's pretty wild. An edible dimension? Edipole. Edipole, yes, yes, yes. There's edible dimensions also. The edible dimension of this podcast is you you have to eat the flesh of your father as you're listening to the show. Yes. Well, and it also fits with families family matters is is this season so we 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 did it podcast over we already tied up the family theme with ivan and jason reitman yeah i want us to be thinking of this like logan roy and kendall roy like battle of father and son sure sure well we'll start with the son because juno was my choice so juno man this is this was a tough one for s- some very specific reasons for me but we'll just say you know lar- generally the general outline juno is the story of a precocious 16 year old girl named juno i will pause there to say that when i'm referring to juno the character i will call her a girl and use she her pronouns but when we're talking about elliot page who came out as trans you know, over a decade after this movie, then I will say Elliot and use he, him pronouns. So 16-year-old girl named Juno who gets pregnant after having sex one time with her awkward, not-quite-boyfriend, Polly Bleeker, whose big identifying character trait is that he loves orange Tic Tacs. While pregnant, Juno finds a couple to adopt her baby, but the husband, played by Jason Bateman, creeps on her and leaves the wife, Jennifer Garner, so Juno gives the baby to just her. She and Polly fall out over the course of the movie, but then she feels his mailbox with orange Tic Tacs and they kiss the end. And I find this movie easiest to contextualize in just some bullet points, kind of like facts about the movie. So here, are, here's a little scatter plot of Juno. 
It was Roger Ebert's favorite movie of 2007. I like how that's number that's the number one fact we have. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, th- that feels really like specific to me. That feels very like ah uh, yes. You know what? You kind of know Roger Ebert's taste a little bit. Yeah, You're getting a sense of the year. I don't know. Uh, it was nominated for four Oscars. I did not remember. The, I didn't know, remember it was nominated for any Oscars, but it was nominated for Best Picture. Uh, Jason Reitman, this is his second feature. He's nominated for Best Director. Um, at the time, in the Best Actress category, Elliot Page was nominated. And it won for Best Original Screenplay by Diablo Cody in in her very first screenplay. Yeah, she had like all of her tattoos and was at the Oscars and gave this right. really kind of badass, memorable Oscar speech. Really? Well, I, I should have looked it up. What was it? What was the speech? I don't, I didn't, I should have watched it again. I just, I just have the mental image of her. Well, clearly not that memorable. Whatever. This was uh, 15 <laughs> years ago, man. This is a pretty good. No, I mean, I definitely remember the, the figure of like, whoa, this lady used to be a stripper. And now she writes. Can you believe strippers can write and read? And yeah, she was like a blogger. She like blogged about her, you know, time stripping. And I see her as part of this little like wave of bloggers turned authors screenwriters uh the the woman apparently julie and julia started as a blog this woman julie powell wrote about working through the julia child cookbook and then this bro blogger tucker max i hope they serve beer in hell was the like book that he came and it's the to give you a sense of him the picture is him his face on the cover of the book with with his arm over a woman, it's clearly like a cutout of a picture of him actually like going out at night. But the woman's face is like cut out of the picture, and it's just this like white hole in the face. It's like the, the bitches don't even matter, man. It could have been any different girl on any different night, you know, bro. Yeah, yeah. So not to compare Diablo Cody in any other way to that other than that she was a blogger. Okay, are you a big Diablo Cody apologist? No, but what's the problem with Diablo Cody? Well, my next bullet point here is her fucking dialogue in this movie. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I big... think you're going to tell me she like killed somebody or <laughs> No, not in, you know, we we can also cancel people for making bad art you know okay not cancel them but yeah so to me the big three facts about this movie is juno uses a hamburger phone the moldy peaches the exist and are most of the soundtrack and diablo cody's dialogue period okay i it's just it would be too much to go all the way into it those are the big facts those those to me are the big thing like the hamburger phone was fucking huge Everyone's like the moldy peaches, and then the way the characters talk in this movie. There's there's mm. movie posters that are like, it seems like the characters are doing a high wire act, and like a lot of people criticize this movie for the characters not speaking normally because it definitely it's so affected that 
it, it it's it, it's the dialogue is just so intentionally stylized in a way that clearly some people loved. I found incredibly annoying at the time. I hated this movie pretty much just because of the Diablo Cody dialogue. Wow. Okay. For example, okay, this I'm pretty sure this one was in the trailer. Rain Wilson. Uh, Dwight from The Office has one of these like little three-line day player parts as a convenience store employee in one scene and never comes back. Uh, Juno's taken her like third positive pregnancy test and he's telling her she has to pay for them and she's like trying to figure out why this next one is still positive. And the line he says is, this is one doodle that can't be undid, home skillet. No, it's and really embarrassing. As an actor who has gone out for many of these <laughs> type of parts, I truly cannot imagine like auditioning with that. Like to do that without to do that with a straight face, even knowing that it's supposed to be funny, the type of huge generous quotes funny that it's supposed to be. I'm just like one doodle that home skillet? Like even if it's a, it, it breaks my brain. Also, Juno's friend says honest to blog very casually at one point when they're on the phone. It's just, it's a lot, man. It's a, it's a lot. I don't think Juno has to be some like perfect representation of life. You know, we've already like, you know, picked it, the idea of re- realism, um, last week in our shoplifters episode, but but it's got to be uh, less less obnoxious than this. I, I I don't know. That's just my thing. But I'll move on. Okay, we can talk yeah. more about that later because I think that's a big a big the tweeness you know factor, right? Yeah, it's high. It's it's very high, and it's very of the moment too. And I was just think, kind of thinking about like. Gilmore Girls, right? Mm-hmm. I would say Gilmore Girls did it well. Well, how recently have you watched Gilmore Girls? Because I'm watching it right now with my tween. Pretty recently. Okay, yeah. Well, we like to joke that it's um, that it's teenage girl Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, yeah, hundred uh, percent. And I think it's kind of it's of that moment, but not quite. It's doing something a little different, but it's still. It's still pretty much... I'm not saying it's without its cringeworthiness. Yeah, yeah. But it is nowhere near in the realm of Juno. All right, all right. I want to keep hearing this. Yes. Speaking of the the times, speaking of the cringe, the opening credits of this movie and the title cards uh, borrow from this hand-drawn style of fellow quirked-up comedy Napoleon Dynamite. I don't even know if Napoleon Dynamite did this first, but this shit, like, screams mid-aughts to me just this like hand-drawn i think there was like a zach braff movie that that had this or garden state no not garden state i mean maybe napoleon dynamite came out in 2004 yeah this was definitely drawing from from that aesthetic for sure for sure and yeah just just this overly affected uh you know the 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 sort of not inspiring side of DIY. Anyway, speaking of the mid-aughts, 
this is a this is a pretty heavy hitting cast for the time. Original Arrested Development. So Juno's in 2007. Original Arrested Development, starring Michael Sarah and Jason Bateman, ran 2003 to 2006. West Wing with Allison Janney, and I had thought J.K. Simmons. I associated him with West Wing for some reason, but he's only like in one random episode. That doesn't count. But West Wing with Allison Janney, 1999 to 2006. Alias with Jennifer Garner, 2001 to 2006. These were all like big. I mean, Arrested Development might be the still most influential of those shows, but West Wing and Alias were fucking way huger. Um, Elliot Page was in Hard Candy in 2005 playing a 14-year-old girl who traps and tortures a man she suspects of being a sexual predator. And I thought that was a nice little pairing with Jason Bateman's character in June. Well, yeah. Which we'll talk about, for sure. Also, let's talk about the abortion dialogue of it all. Um, Juno in the movie decides not to get an abortion when a clinic protester, who's also a classmate of hers, mentions that her baby probably already has fingernails. Juno walks into the clinic, notices all the fingernails in the waiting room, and freaks out. And this intelligent, you know, well thought through, self, you know, self possessed girl, you know, that that's just that's that is enough to make her reconsider an abortion. Okay, right. So, and then as a result, people have interpreted this as an anti abortion movie. Um, Diablo Cody in 2019 said she wouldn't have written it in the current cultural climate, which is fine. And she's like, I'd like it to be a thing that sort of cast in amber. And we, we just think of it in terms of the time and look at it. And that's kind of like the opposite of what we're doing with this podcast. So, sorry, Diablo Cody. It's also just like, okay, 2019. 2007 was, you know, George W. Bush era, you know, Christian right um, in triumph still. I don't really understand. I mean, I know I can see what's different politically about these moments, but um, it's not as if it was cast in the kind of um, false safety of the Obama years. This was, you know, I don't really understand yeah. what what she's implying there. I mean, I think of it as the sort of like peeling away of the layers of blinders on white privilege, where in 2007, there were plenty, you know, myself included, there were still plenty of people who saw, you know, abortion dialogue as like the abortion debate, not like, oh, this is, as it turned out to be, clearly on its way to getting overturned. And yeah, a, a truly dire issue. Diablo Cody also says in that same interview that like no one is more anti-abortion than she is. Anytime someone says something like that, I'm like, oh, wait, no one is more anti-abortion or pro-choice? Oh, pro-choice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she, but yeah, she's like, no one's more more pro-abortion than I am. And I'm like, that feels like a very little. I'm like. Okay, this is me casting aspersions. I feel like Diablo Cody's the kind of person who would say that and then be like, I love Planned Parenthood. As if Planned Parenthood is like the paragon of, you know, truly cutting edge abortion access in America, which 
It's not. Anyway, there was a media scare after the movie came out, which I didn't quite remember, except vaguely, that said uh, that the movie was glorifying pregnancy and leading to a spike in teen pregnancies, when actually they dipped by a couple percent in 2007 and 2008. But 2008 was an election year. Republican vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin was governor of Alaska. So when her daughter Bristol got pregnant at 17, the press could not resist the temptation to go, it's a Juno and Juno, man. I totally forgot about that. But yeah. yeah. Yep. So we're getting into my, my a little bit of my takes here before I'll hand it off to you for Junior. But for all its countercultural signifiers, Juno, to me, is a movie very obsessed with normalcy. Characters talk about being gay like it's absurd. The weirdest career Juno can imagine for the goth girls at school is children's librarian, as if that's the like height of revolutionary. I mean, maybe in some ways, but like, I don't know. It, it still feels very like a limited imagination. And Juno wants assurance from her dad that people can stay together forever. And the person she wants to stay with forever is her high school boyfriend. Genre-wise, Wikipedia calls this a coming-of-age comedy drama. So the genre issues are plentiful. Uh, There's a mystery element to what Juno will ultimately choose to do with the baby. On my second viewing, it seemed very obvious that this baby was going to Vanessa no matter what. But it also makes sense that the mystery would not be as strong after having watched it the first time. I think that was, yeah, more of a more of a factor for in 2007. There's even and and I think we use horror a lot you, what you and I when talking about genre mashing and 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 disguises. But but there were genuine suspenseful moments in this as we wait for Jason Bateman to creep on Juno. And, and, and I like that actually like had me tense in the way that occasionally horror movies are, um, which then sort of boils over with Juno crying by the side of the road after he finally, yeah, goes, makes his, his last ditch creep move. Um, I would say in terms of genre, maybe this is the fact that it is just one of the most failed to be funny comedies I've ever seen in terms of the ratio of attempted to actual laughs, <laughs> makes it a different type of comedy. Um, and then the also question I have that we can get into later is, does Juno come of age? Like, does she actually, mm. you know, wh- wh- what's that process? And then the last big thing I've got is that I've touched on the soundtrack a little bit, but I recently bought the soundtrack on CD for two ninety nine. 19 tracks, a very 2007 number of tracks on a CD. I listened to this in full in preparation for this episode. Wow. Um, Kimya Dawson was part of this, like, Brooklyn, like, quote, anti-folk group, the Moldy Peaches, which is basically just, like, poorly recorded guitar strumming under wordy, innocent, perhaps exaggeratedly innocent lyrics. Uh, although I did discover that Kimya Dawson, at least at one time, was sober. So so now I'm like more, I, I, I am like, you know, as a fellow traveler there, I'm like, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll let her have the like 
you know, sickly sweet responses to suicidal friends type of Mm -hmm. lyrics. Mm -hmm. But this music, this was the sound of college for me. You and I went to the same school. I worked in Ex Libris, the coffee shop in the basement of the Regenstein Library at U Chicago. And um yeah, this the the Moldy Peaches was one of the things that was on the series all the time. A lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it, it what a weird band to to have been as popular as they were even marginally there. Um so Elliot Page suggested the Moldy Peaches to Jason Reitman as the Muno, the music Juno would listen to. And I was part of spreading this information because I interviewed Elliot Page for Pitchfork, which is my first job, like full-time job out of college. I did not remember doing this until I clicked on a random link in the Wikipedia and found, found, uh, you know, an, an article uh, that was from Pitchfork, but published to Ellen. Uh, sorry, yeah, yeah, published to Elliot Page's old website. Uh, there's a there's a cemetery's worth of dead names in this in this article. Uh, you know, but talks Page talks Juno soundtrack Kimya Dawson. Uh, I fucking did this interview, and I like vaguely kind of remember it now. Uh, I I expected to be more embarrassed of it. For like a like a twenty three year old little Davy Marr, but I did I did okay. I think the y- you know uh, the most you'll know after listening to this episode and maybe even now that this question on my part is is kind of subtle shade. So I so I say. Another thing about the Moldy Peaches music is that it's really wordy, and I'm wondering how that fits underneath or around the movie's dialogue. Do all the Kimya slash Moldy Peaches songs play during silent or transitional scenes? Which I think is actually pretty, like, neutrally worded. But that's me being like, this fucking annoying-ass music, how are you going to get any scenes out around this? And the answer is they kind of don't. They just mix... You know, Juno's character, Kimya Dawson might as well be singing as Juno's character uh, a lot. And and it's a very, very porous, porous boundary between the songs and the script. Um, I will say that I think this movie is more interesting than I gave it credit for uh, initially. Dialogue, I still found unbearable, but... Core of the story, especially uh, in comparison to Junior, I do find worth discussing. I feel like I took too in long comparison to, that, to Junior. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, definitely, like, yeah, yeah. On its own, there's a lot that's been said about Juno. You're casting shade on Junior. That's what you're doing. I'll cast sh- both of these movies are not good movies, man. I disagree with you. I think I that know. Junior is a good movie. I actually think it is. so funny. I don't, you know, the thing is, I don't really remember when, when Juno came out, I remember seeing it. And I think it was one of these things where I just felt like I was supposed to figure out how to like it. If that makes sense. Like it was so popular and it was at this like kind of hipster moment 
where I was very, I was 20, I think I was 21 when this movie came out. And I was just trying to belong. And (laughs) the aesthetic of this movie was just so hyped, you know, Mm -hmm. that um, I have a kind of amnesia about my own taste response. It was more, or maybe that is my taste response, was just feeling coerced into thinking Mm -hmm. this was good. Mm -hmm. And I kind of have the same feeling about the moldy peaches, although I did really like the moldy peaches for a time. Um, I, it's hard for me not to associate it with just being really, really depressed, you know, and chain smoking and just not, not eating enough food, you know, having like day old bagels and coffee and, and blowing a lot of my weekly budget on rolling tobacco, you know, and it being cold and, and just not like, yeah, never being warm, you know, <laughs> and listening oh, to the moldy totally. peaches. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. it kind of brings me back viscerally to that whenever I hear the soundtrack. And I guess, yeah, there's just no way for me to really, um, distinguish those autobiographical details from from this music or the aesthetic at large. Now, Napoleon Dynamite, and I, I interjected with Garden State, but apparently what you were talking about was something else. Well, maybe there was. Maybe there was element. I'm just talking about this drawing sort of like... Sure. I think that aesthetic. was part of Garden State. But anyways, I, I was trying to say is, I ne- I have still never seen Napoleon Dynamite, and I've still never seen Garden State. Like mm-hmm. there were also a lot of movies in that time where I there was just so much hype that I just avoided it altogether. I just was like, kind of okay, you know, yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to engage with this. And for whatever reason, I did see Juno, but I don't, I don't have any memory of of when I saw it. And what I was mostly really interested in rewatching it was what I knew I knew exactly what was going to happen. I remember specifically that like she goes along with the plan of not keeping the baby cuz that's the thing you worry about in a movie like this is like oh god by the end she's going to have the baby and want to keep the right. baby right, and right, we're right. going aside it's going to that's going to be this like unlikely situation that we'll feel as the audience through this identification with her character is that even though this is going to be a shit life for this baby and this character is a teenager, we're still going to want somehow the teenage. I appreciated that that never happened. There's not even like a moment where you're wondering if that's going to happen upon Mm -hmm. a rewatch. But um, so I knew the whole arc of the story, but the big kind of lacuna of this movie for me was Jason Bateman. I had no memory of that fucking character being so creepy. You didn't either? No. Oh my gosh. It wasn't really in the dialogue either. The the big um the big review that I found um was actually that was actually of the Juno soundtrack was of another, you know, Ebert's the movie critic, but Jim DeRogatis, what is the what is was the Chicago Sun-Times rock music critic and he 
hated the movie, hated the soundtrack, and went into it. And and there were moments of his this review which are very like vindicating. I'm like, he's like pointing out, he's like, he's like, why would this? I, I mean, I, I've got to like find what he what he says but there there's he he's just like pointing out like why would she do certain things and and, and i'm like yes yes but then there's other moments where he's like then juno becomes representative for him of like oh she's trying to be so rebellious but she's not even she doesn't even have as good a record collection as Jason Bateman's character. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. The thing we're giving J- the thing we're saying about Jason Bateman's character is anything positive and is that he has a good record collection. What the fuck are we talking about here? People just weren't talking about that. With it's so like. weird. Yeah. It is such a weird um such a weird character and it's part it's one of the things i've been really fascinated in you know lately is returning to some of these things that i saw in my teens and 20s um specifically where there are these creepy old men and how mm-hmm. much i didn't notice them and how much i as a teenager was um just conditioned to not just accept but expect that kind of relationship with slightly older men. And if anything, there's a weird, yeah, there's a weird point in the story where I, I was really freaked out that actually what we're supposed to be feeling is that Juno and Jason Bateman belong together somehow. You know, uh, I didn't get that. I, I I I will give the movie credit. I think the movie sees Jason Bateman as a creep. It does, but it doesn't. It's too subtle about it. About that, honestly, it's way too subtle about that. And then you don't really get a sense that Juno ever understands that either. What what about when she like falls apart on the side of the highway? She's like he's he's like done his weird dance, the slow dance with her, and he's admitted he's gonna leave his wife, and she like races home and pulls off the road and like just starts weeping. Yeah, but how did you interpret that moment? Because okay, so I I completely buy that, you know, that's one interpretation of it. But I found that scene to be very confusing. Similar to the fingernails thing, where it's like, okay, how this is clearly a really important turning point in the story, mm-hmm. but I can't read Juno at all, and I don't get where she's coming from in that moment. So, is she realizing, oh my god, what a creep, and he was like going after me this whole time? Is she blaming herself? You know, that would be a very interesting, that would be interesting territory to explore with this teenage yeah. girl, like, that she's blaming herself for his fucked up behavior, um, and for not seeing it beforehand, and, and and for ruining their marriage, or something like that. But instead, we just don't get anything. We just get crying and music, you know? And yeah. I think this is the hyper-stylization point you were making earlier, Um 
I don't really have a problem with be- things being super stylized, but I do have a problem with it getting in the way of, um, it's not like I think that it's being ambiguous in like an interesting provocative way. I think it's being ambiguous because it just doesn't get where it's coming from as a narrative. You know, that's interesting. I think because Juno it like, and this is part of the problem with having like a quote, I don't think Juno is very cool, but the movie thinks Juno is a very like cool character mm-hmm. is that cool people are, you know, one of the, things that's synonymous with a cool person is like not a lot of outward expressions of emotion. Right. And, and so Juno is very like hard to read in certain ways. Um, I think in part because, you know, I think it would be, we'd be remiss not to mention a thing that does hang over Juno, but is weirdly not mentioned that much just in the very beginning of the movie. Her mother, like, left their family and has a new family somewhere else. And at yeah. no point does anyone reach out to her mom to tell her that she's pregnant. Does the mom try to visit? It's just like, like, it, it very, like, the movie is very clean in these ways where it feels like Juno, like, sees a problem, gets upset by it, but in a muted way, and then just like processes it very quickly. And then it's just like, okay, well, now I'm moving on. In the same way that she wants to, like, have this baby handed off and then just like, yeah, great. Uh, you know, th- th- that was that was all done. Like, she literally says to her dad and stepmom, like, uh, you know, this could just be a thing that we laugh about in, in 30 weeks, you know? And I think I don't th- – one of the reasons I don't know if it's a real coming-of-age story is, like – I think that is kind of what happens. I don't know if she like learns that much. Well, that's the, and that's, that's interesting. Cause you know, that was one of the things I was saying earlier is what I like about the movie is that she follows through with the plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the plan changes a little bit because of Jason Bateman being an asshole, but like Jennifer Gardner gets the baby. But let's not even talk about like why Juno thinks that, that that the baby should go there specifically because that's that's a whole other wait what do you mean well just like if she's that cool right if juno's that cool then i guess she becomes convinced that they should have the baby because of the guitars right that he has and that he's cool (laughs) right but then eventually she realizes that you know he is immature but that that this mother wants to be a mother, so she should be a mother, right? And um, I like that it sticks to that, even though it fucks with our 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 sense of, you know, is she going to change her mind, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, in some ways, some of the most interesting aspects of the movie are just so undercut, right? Like the Alice and Janney character is clearly actually Juno's mom. She's the stepmom, mm-hmm. but she really loves Juno, and what I like about the movie is that it's deviating from some biological vision of motherhood, right? But where better place to explore that than with Juno's actual bio mom, right? But what a missed opportunity. I mean, holy shit. And I really feel like the the Jason Bateman character is... Um, 
confusing and creepy and weird, but another missed opportunity where I'm like, that's interesting, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's, Let's keep thinking about what's so fucked up here, and it just wants to move on as soon as we get a taste of sure how deep that goes with him, right? Totally, totally. Yeah, that's really frustrating because it could have been such a better movie with this premise, you know? Yeah, yeah. There, there. It, to me, it's it's not like a it's not like a twenty percent tinkering that gets it there. It's like we're having to like this is a real fixer upper. We're having to like strip out very load bearing walls and fucking plumbing and electrical and shit to get it there. But, but I do see, I mean, to me, the thing that I really liked in this movie was Jennifer Garner's character. Um, and, and I I mean, I've just like started to enjoy her as an actress, you know, recently, but I also think that, like, thinking of this movie from Jennifer Garner's perspective, I enjoy that version of the movie more than the Juno movie. Oh, my God. This is exactly what I wanted to talk about. Okay. So, uh, A, I agree. Jennifer Garner and Allison Janney are like, and J.K. Simmons. Those are the way more yeah. interesting characters. Yes. Um, Michael, Sarah, and Juno do not get developed at all. They are just like flat notes. It's insane. It's insane. There's no dimensionality to these characters at all. And yet they get all of the screen time and all of the attention. And I was like really thinking throughout, wow, this would be such a better movie if it was told through a different character, you know, than Juno. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, The Jennifer Garner character, definitely. The fucking Jason Bateman character. I would even do that. That'd be creepy and weird, but I'd go there. The Alice and Jenny, J.K. Simmons, you know, just anyone but Juno. Honestly, what a gaping hole in the middle of this movie, you know? I mean, it's just wild how much credit. I mean, it won, not that I put that much talk in awards shows, but it, it won Best Original Screenplay. It, it and it's so poorly written. I mean, it's it's it, from a perspective of are these characters? Uh, what does this say anything true about humanity? I mean, and, and I was like, the orange tic tac thing just bugged the shit out of me. I'm like, why? What is? Because I'm because it j- is just exactly the kind of thing that someone thinks is so clever and they mm. think is just synecdoche for mm. an entire character they're just like oh my god i've i've got it a- and i did find out that diablo cody like did know some guy who was really obsessed with orange tic tacs so then she has the the plausible deniability of like well no it did really happen in real life but it's like but the only thing you took from that guy was that he was into orange tic tacs like that's not a fucking character like I think about, uh, have you seen Cool Runnings? Yeah, but a really long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know when, like, uh, when Sanka has the egg and he keeps, like, kissing the egg for good luck? And uh, and 
and the captain of the team, I think, is like, Sanka is like, oh, we need our own like Jamaican style, like all these other styles. And the captain is like, Sanka, kissing the egg is not a style. And I feel like that about this movie is like, Orange Tic Tacs is not a character. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah. And same with like, whoa, Juno drinks Sunny D. That's so freaking quirky, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of quirky stuff. But, okay, the line about Leah, the character being into teachers and how she loves Woody Allen. I did like moments like that to impress the teacher. See, these were the kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge moments that... right you want the movie to be right. And it just has like four of them or something. Right. <laughs> but right. Could, the whole thing could be coming from that kind of place. Um, but it's just, it's so inconsistent and I can't tell how much of it is about Diablo Cody. And I can't tell how much of it is about Jason Reitman. My, my temptation is to blame Jason Reitman in a, you know, a petty kind of way. Why? For, for the confusion, for like not really knowing what to do, how to handle this script, you know, like why would it go to him? I I just really don't get it. You know, I mean, but so do you think the script is this like sacred text? No, 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 no. I'm just saying like, if I'm going to be petty and blame somebody, I'm, I'm, I'm just as curious about how, much Jason Reitman fucked it up. And I guess I, yeah. I I guess I feel that way because I think he he is clearly the Jason Bateman character, you know. <laughs> Why? Well, cuz I know that he's more the Jason Bateman character than Jason Bateman is, you know. Why? He's just like midlife crisisy and like plays guitars and has daddy issues and and was like chasing some youth fantasy through this movie, maybe, or you know, that kind does of he thing. have daddy issues? Well, yeah, Ivan Reitman <laughs> is his daddy, but why does that mean he has daddy issues? I saw the recent Ghostbusters movie. Oh, okay, okay. I yeah. really, I really strongly believe it's about his daddy issues, and they're all kind okay. of like projected onto the Harold Ramis character. But okay. that's another episode. Sure, sure. I just am like, like, I feel like you're using, I feel like when you say pettiness, you mean your desire, which I can understand and even get behind in some ways, your desire to blame the man. Mm. Well, I just don't know. Which is fair. Like, like, I get that. But I think they're, I think this is a, this is the, the shit show in this movie is a joint, it's a fucking collab shit show. It is, it is. So that's why I'm just trying to take some of the pressure off Diablo Cody in some ways. Because I'm like, well, let's talk about Jason Reitman. And let's also talk about, like, the men in this movie are, they're just so confusing and underdeveloped. You know, the Michael Sarah character. Yeah. It's just donuts it's and Tic Tacs and right. long distance running. I don't really know. And he's basically just playing the Arrested Development character, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's fine, whatever. But then are we supposed to really feel, (sighs) I don't know. I guess the thing, if I'm going to be really generous about the end and 
and question the coming of age story. I, I would say, you know, that coming of age is, means in this situation that she gets to ultimately still be a teenager, right? Like she does this incredibly mature thing, quote unquote. I'm, mm-hmm. And by that, we just mean self-sacrificing, right? Maybe it's not mature at all. It's just like right. all about gender and how fucked up it is, right? But somehow that gets resolved with this last scene where she's back with Michael Sarah. They're playing music together. It's as if nothing had happened, right? And he gets to have gone through the whole thing without, without ever seeing the baby, mm-hmm. without going to any of the you know, doctor's appointments or anything like that. And, you know, sure, he respects her decision to keep the baby, I guess. But really, other than that, there's a lot of, there's a lot there to explore in terms of, you know, inequity between these characters. Mm -hmm. And that just gets um, kind of, thrown aside in the end so that we can have this cutesy scene where they sing the song together, you know? Yeah. She hops off her bike and directs, you know, within three seconds is playing the guitar, which is also fine. Could be a stylized thing, but just in the rest of the movie, it was just, but the, yeah, yeah, the, 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 the men in the, you know, and Michael Sarah included in that, you know, are just so um, opaque and J.K. Simmons, okay, I really like the fact that J.K. Simmons and Alice and Janie are such good parents in this mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. And that their first thing that they ask Juno is if they if she wants to get an abortion, right? It's not like they're pressuring Juno to do this. And in fact, quite the opposite. They're kind of struggling to figure out how to be in solidarity with Juno making this autonomous decision about her body. Like I thought that was all really fantastic and a a much worse movie would have, you know, those characters would have been totally flat and like the Michael Sarah character, but instead, and this is getting back to like what, who gets to be foregrounded, who goes into the background, but those characters and their, the subtlety of those decisions that they're making, the eye contact they're making, in that scene where Juno tells them that she's pregnant, you know, mm-hmm. there's so much rich stuff there. It's just like, nope, we need to go into another like cutesy montage. We need more soundtrack. We mean, you know, right. it's just right. so uninterested in the most interesting, juicy parts, you know? Well, I think the thing, I mean, this is making me realize just like, I, you know, I think we touched on this in the shoplifters episode that it, man, these actors bring a lot to it. And as much as this was an Elliot page coming out party or a Michael Sarah, part of his ascension of like, is this weird guy somehow going to be a movie star is, is like they just, it, I mean, it almost comes down to the lack of wrinkles on their faces. Like just the, the lines in the faces of Alice and Janney and JK Simmons, like, communicate so much and and they bring so 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 weirdly what fleshes out this movie so much is whatever choices those two made behind the scenes to really have such rich inner lives for these characters um you know like 
Allison Janney has uh her her character has fucking weird little quirks like being obsessed with dogs and when Juno leaves she's going to get Weimaraners and that could seem like such a jokey little thing but it's like I almost forgot that that was a part of Allison Janney's character because it's just like it's not she's not playing I like Weimaraners she's playing like I have all these things and oh as part of my desire to get a dog despite knowing I have to be good to this kid who's allergic to dog saliva like you know and other people like even the fact that like it's clearly was supposed to be a joke that Juno's allergic to dog saliva like that that wasn't just like oh it's cuz you're allergic to dogs but Allison Janney fucking soft pedals the shit out of that line and is not like isn't like landing on it home skillet style from rain wilson is like just meant just tosses off saliva as as facts of this person's life the point being they just they're the ones who are doing so much heavy lifting for the script in a lot of ways i mean she's just such a pro mm-hmm. she's working with so little and making so much of it and it just doesn't it doesn't it doesn't get anywhere. And then I was feeling okay. To the contrary, I'm not a huge Jason Bateman fan. I'm just going to say it, okay? But surprise, surprise. Another white man bites the dust. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, like, this guy has had so much screen time. <laughs> yeah. He is, uh, he is put in the hours to be a much better actor than this. <laughs> this character is just as fucking flat as the Michael. Star- like I really in the, the, you know, compare the Jennifer Garner character to Jason Bateman. How much more screen time does he get than her? Mm-hmm. And those like quiet moments where she's just looking at the, like scanning the room. There's so much more there then these scenes that I'm like, man, dude, like you could have really gone somewhere with this. I I really think he could have like, and this is my way of being respectful to him. Okay. I'm not just sure, like, oh, sure. you fucking suck. I'm like, I actually think that you, I thought that Ozark was very compelling. He, he knows how to like, he knows his own limitations and he knows what he can do, but he could have done a lot more with this character and I think that that's part of what I really sense is that he's just like floundering. He like really doesn't know what's up here. Like he, he doesn't know what note is it creepy? Is it this? And it's not like, Oh, Meryl Streepy, like, Oh, it's all these things at once or something like that. Like it's just, he doesn't, he's just confused. I'm going to blame the script for that, man, because the, the example I'll give and and I'm not to not to say I'm like the biggest Jason Bateman fan. I think you're an I apologist. Think yeah, pretty much all white men are going to get a huge pass from me uh, as we <laughs> go forward. So okay, so Jason Bateman went you know, this creepy moment when he fucking calls her on the phone at like. At school, right? What happens? Does she call him or whatever? But but Juno's at school. He's talking to her on the phone, and like, and I and I think, yeah, I think she 
she maybe calls just to say hi or something like that. And he's like, you know, at the end of that phone conversation, he's like, go learn something in this kind of overly familiar way that I think is really well played. I think he's the thing he's doing. I think what you're talking about to me is he play he like he plays the smarm so subtly in this movie but so subtly that a whole that the whole fucking culture missed it in 2007 but so effectively that we are catching it in 2023 you know what i mean like i i think i think everything we're seeing was there in 2007 but the culture wasn't there so like I, I I don't know. I don't think his I don't think his performance is as good as some of the others. But I think the it's the script and the 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 structure of the movie that's limiting that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that that's that's the thing that I'm. I guess maybe pinning on Jason Reitman a little bit is it just that that I'm seeing some there's some weird like twinning that I'm doing in my mind between Jason Reitman yeah. and the, and the Jason Bateman character. I'm like, sure, yeah, that's sure. the character that the director really can't figure out his own. <laughs> well, I do think he's given too much. I think we, the, the one moment of like, why the fuck are we sympathizing with the Jason Bateman character for me was when, uh, was it when Jennifer Garner has the two, uh, paint, you know, they're talking about painting the baby's room. And she's like, so this one's custard and this one's cheesecake. And it's so, it's supposed to be so funny that, you know, stupid whoever, woman, not Sorry. even stupid woman. Just like these looks, these he even says, he's like, they're both yellow. Like who came up with this paint joke first? I don't know. But my understanding as a non homeowner is that like, when you're painting your house, you maybe talk about how stupid the names are, but by the time you're painting them, you're like, okay, well, this one's called custard, haha. This one's called cheesecake, but do we like custard or cheesecake more? Not like she's invented these absurd names and clever Jason Bateman is just like, oh. like that struck me as a very normal question to ask. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've never been with a guy like Jason Bateman, so I don't know. Sure. Could only hope. I don't know. It I was just I was really struck by this kind of um I mean the trope of like, you know, the overeager wife who who wants the marriage, wants the baby, wants the this, wants the that, wants the nursery to be ready, all that you know, I mean I was just feeling exhausted by the whole thing of it and, and how little characters like that get to be funny in movies, you know, yeah, totally. It just made me feel, yeah, I was just struck by those kind of missed notes and, and then, yeah, just pissed because man, Jason Bateman just gets a lot of opportunities, um, you know, by contrast and, Screen time. Screen time and just just details about his character that get to come in, you know? Like, yeah. he just yeah. he's just so much more developed than actually any character in this movie, come to think of it. Like, right. you know? Like, even more than Juno, I would say. 
he gets oh. a kind of full life and <laughs> yeah what does it do just flounders okay so this is a movie for people who think that what you like is more important than what you are like yes very true very true and this is very you know this was the aughts this was i sometimes think about this like okay in the aughts like what kind of shoe you wore was this just because of how old i was or was this the time well can finish the sentence well just what kind of shoe i mean i remember having friends who said that they would base you know like who they had a crush on what you know, on on the type of shoe that the guy wore. You know, I think that's probably still happening. Do you think it's happening as intensely though? Because I feel like at the time there were like it was this indie moment, but there were just five or six types of shoes, right? And it's kind of like everything is so <laughs> nicheified and things like that now, right? Sure, sure, maybe. But but it was it was a really superficial moment. Let's just, let's not even just talk about shoes. Let's talk about hipsters and indie mm-hmm, music mm-hmm. and film, and like basically the indie by then just like didn't really mean anything at all. I mean, in the '90s, it actually meant that you had independent production, right? Uh, by the 2000s, it's just it's really just an aesthetic. I mean, it doesn't say anything about the budget of a film or or anything, right? It's it's just the aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, yeah, all this stuff, I mean, it, re- it really does feel of the moment in this kind of flat hipsterdom. It's just embarrassing to think back on, like, mm-hmm. how much this impacted, at least me. I mean, it sounds like you're... This is one of those things where you're, I think you're two years older than me, and I actually think the two-year difference might have made a bit... <laughs> big impact mm, in this mm, in this mm. time you know the difference and yeah. being a couple years out of college or not you know or this kind of like have relating to this as like a full-time employee at, at pitchfork as opposed <laughs> to i was i was in my last year college um dog walking you know i mean sure, sure. i didn't have a trajectory you know, so we were kind of in different points in our lives at this. Yeah, totally. I mean, if you if you read that article, there's plenty of stuff. You know, I'm asking like some other like embarrassing questions about like like I think I end it with like, would you ever work with Judd Apatow if he asked? And <laughs> and it's like what like because I I remember being obsessed with that like all the Judd Apatow stuff at the time. So it's like and and I you know certainly. Not the most, um, you know, feminist I've been. Not the most, uh, not the best taste I've had. But I do remember, you know, this is like me and like the beginning of my post-college, like frustrated artist years where I'm like sharpening my taste and being like the twee stuff, you know, which I weirdly was speaking of Garden State. I was, I didn't, I didn't really care for the movie garden state but the trailer for garden state with that fucking frou-frou song like changed my life it felt like i was like i must have watched that trailer like dozens of times and so i was i was prone to like to enjoy you know overly sincere stuff and 
and uh, uh, what do we what do we call it? Uh, not sentimental. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But you know what? You know what I'm liking about Juno. Thinking okay. back on this moment, you bring up Garden State. And I was just thinking about the Natalie Portman character and how much. Right. Yeah, you know, like I like I said, I still have not seen this movie, and yet mm-hmm. I'm so aware of this character, right? right and the right, right, right. and the manic pixie girl, right? And this is the this is the moment of the manic pixie girl. And what what actually is cool about this movie is I don't think that Juno is a manic pixie girl, right? No, she's or manic, definitely not a manic pixie dream girl, right? Yeah, Instead, yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael Sarah is a little bit of the the manic pixie dream girl of it all, right? Like just this kind of empty vessel that like doesn't, doesn't get an arc just as there for plot purposes. Right. And resolution. I think that's a really good call. And I think that is one of the things that I would keep about the movie if we're overhauling it, you know, but it's, but, but yeah, there was, there was too much about this that was too, it's 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 you know you read about the production of the movie and and you see like uh Jason Reitman talking about the production designers and giving them credit for like you know in in Leah Juno's best friend's room the walls are covered with older men she likes in you know uh Polly Bleeker Michael Sarah's character the walls are covered with blah 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 whatever he likes and it's like there's there's very little messiness of of life. I don't need the characters to be quote realistic, but I don't want everything. I don't want to be able to figure out ev- what every symbol is, what every metaphor is, what every like every little thing is so compartmentalized that that it it just it doesn't feel like life to me. It's. I think it's what what you were bringing up earlier. Is these characters have taste, but they don't. They don't have anything else. To be honest, they don't even have that good a taste. The no, but they are a type, right? No, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Well, I think now is a good time to move on to Junior. Uh, we can talk about it within its own context, but we, I mean, it, we can't do a double feature without comparing these movies on some level. For sure. As well. They need to be compared, in fact. They beg to be compared. Yep. Um, okay. So, Junior, I suggested this movie. I will be honest. I grew up with this movie. This was a VHS tape in my house. Mm. But then in 2011, when I was pregnant... I watched this movie numerous times. Um, One time was really fun with my friend Nick. He came because he wanted to see like what I wanted to eat. You know, he was like really curious about what are these weird cravings that you're having in your third trimester. (laughs) So we watched Junior together and made this incredible buffet of food and it was a- it's actually kind of like the the scene in it where Danny DeVito's ex-wife wife whatever what's her name Angela's the name of the yeah 
of Danny DeVito's wife. So it's a lot like that scene with Angela and Alex, the Schwarzenegger character, where they eat a bunch of things. And we, the thing that my friend Nick was really um, curious about was the combination of pickles and ice cream. So we had a okay. bunch of different kinds of pickles. We had different kinds of ice cream. And it was really fun. Um, but I especially enjoyed watching this when I was pregnant. I thought it was hilarious. I really enjoyed it a lot. Okay. And um, But I hadn't seen it since then. So that's been like, you know, now probably like, you know, 12 years since then. Yeah. So I was pretty curious to see it. Um, here's some context. So Junior came out in 1994 and was projected to break box office records opening weekend. But it actually kind of floundered. It earned only half of its budget in the U.S. Um, it wasn't necessary. It earned more globally. It wasn't necessarily a flop, but people didn't really know what to do with it. Okay, so Siskel and Ebert gave it two thumbs up. Um, Ebert, he's going to come up in both of our intros, I guess. He gave it three and a half out of four uh, mm. stars. Newsweek called it neither hilarious nor horrible. Um, some called it a high concept comedy and others said it was a one joke clunker. Janet Maslin said it couldn't live up to its potential as a sight gag. Okay. Lots of mixed feelings about it. Um, most of it is just about, you know, why, why did you make this, this weird movie in which Schwarzenegger becomes artificially impregnated by Danny DeVito as they test a fertility drug they've been developing, but for, for which they've um, just lost research funding. It turns out that the drug expectane works, and instead of going off his dosage when he reaches the second trimester, Schwarzenegger decides he wants to carry the pregnancy to term and become a parent. Hijinks ensue, montages ensue. <laughs> Lots of, mo- mm-hmm. I think there's like three or four montages, like legit montages in this movie. Okay. So this was 94, and Schwarzenegger was one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood and just starting to branch out into comedy. In 88 and 90, he teamed up with Reitman in Twins and Kindergarten Cop. Those were the only two comedies he had done. Um, But the year before, he did The Last Action Hero, which I never actually saw, but like Mm. a lot of people say it's it's more of a comedy and that, you know, certainly by the later 90s, a lot of people were appreciating Schwarzenegger for his comic timing. Batman and Robin. I mean, did you see that movie? Like, I think I might have at the time. The only reason to see it is Mr. Freeze. And he has so many really funny, stupid lines. But like Schwarzenegger seemed to completely understand the campiness yeah. of that character and I would call it commitment more than timing. Almost. Sure, sure. But yeah, but yeah, there's his his awareness of there being comedy and leaning into it for sure. Yeah, yeah, and that's like we would say in the eighties, he's this kind of self serious action action star who is funny, but there's a sense that he's not aware of how funny he is, right? And of course, like Terminator, who's not even human, right, kind of um, really encapsulates that, right? So this is a kind of interesting moment, and this is definitely, I think, in all of Arnold Schwarzenegger's filmography, 
the biggest risk he ever ever took seems sure, to be this yeah. movie. Yeah. That's one of the things I wanted to point out in the context. The other thing I want to point out, just as an Emma Thompson fan, um, she's also in this movie. And this is a really pivotal moment in her career. It's right after Hall, uh, after Howard's end and Remains of the Day. And she's kind of being thrown into the spotlight as, you know, one of the main you know, leading actresses of her time, who's able to do these um, period dramas, who's able to do Shakespeare, who's able to do all sorts of things. And yet she does this. So while she was filming Junior, her husband at the time, Kenneth Branagh, was weirdly filming a, a similar film thematically, which was the adaptation, his adaptation of Frankenstein. Okay. Mm. So we can talk a little bit about the Frankenstein of this Frankensteinian kind of themes of this movie, if you like. But at the, what I want to say right now is that Branna was having an affair with Helena Bonham Carter and Thompson and Branna broke up that year. The next year, her screen adaptation of Sense and Sensibility was made by Ang Lee. It's pretty cool that she wrote that. Not a lot of people remember that. She Whoa, she wrote that? And I would say out of any of the Jane Austen movies or anything, that is the best although i actually think that the novel is probably the best jane austen novel too but it's a really great screenplay and she came up you know and then she starred in it english i think she was instrumental in, in getting ang lee to direct it and um her life was falling apart and all this kenneth branagh bullshit and fuck him and then um she met her current husband, Greg Wise, who played John Willoughby. I don't know how familiar you are with that novel, but um, Willoughby is, um, he's, he's a stupid guy. Okay. He really, okay. he messes up his opportunity to get in good with these sisters. He fucks up. He's shallow, but he's played by, and he's, he's, he's gorgeous and young and Emma Thompson ended up with him and they've been together ever since. So I'm only saying this to be like, we are, you know, we stand Emma Thompson. Fuck <laughs> Kenneth Branagh. I'm putting words in your mouth, but this was the moment. You know what? Men have been putting words in women's mouths too long. It's time you put words <laughs> in my mouth. Thank you. Okay. This is my, my penance. So that was all happening. This is like more of a British tabloid situation, but that was all kind of happening in the yeah. background and people were aware. And um, so, yeah, interesting moment for both of them whose, you know, careers never intertwine after. Um, DeVito also is just coming off of the huge success of Batman Returns. And this is probably like, you know, he played Penguin. This is probably the peak of his career ultimately. So one of the things I want, just bringing all of those threads together, the thing I was interested in was what a huge risk this movie <laughs> movie really was. Like yeah. it's kind of hard to appreciate. Um, and it could have been, even though it didn't succeed as much as, as they were hoping the studios were hoping this could have been a much more brutal flop than it was. So this is, you know, this is one of the things I wanted to bring up is just people don't know what to do with this movie. Yeah. Confused about it. So 
it's not simply a stupid movie um, that we watch because it's stupid, right? What's a good example of this? I mean, a lot of the old Schwarzenegger movies, uh, you know, uh, maybe I like, yeah, The Running Man or yeah, what's a like, I mean, in some ways, that's what I wanted this movie to be was like more unintentionally bad. Yeah. Yeah. So it isn't, it isn't quite that. And what I'm interested in is I don't think that it's good for reasons it's intending to be good for. I will definitely not argue that. Sure, sure. It's, it's probably much more confused about its own politics than Juno, right? <laughs> Weirdly, I think it has a, it has like a gender abolitionist impulse to it that's actually a lot more um at times radical than juno is which i think mm-hmm. um just leaves a lot of things unquestioned um it could have been tremendously like transphobic or biologically deterministic and it isn't so i guess the thing i'm really interested in is what to make of it and all of the, all of these misses, right? It it could have been a much worse movie than it was obviously genre wise, plot wise, narrative wise, you know, but politically like it has this weird feminist quality to it. So just to elaborate this, I'm going to, I'm going to pull um, a couple of excerpts from this great essay I read by Julia Cooper in um, Cleo, uh, which is, uh, now um, over, but uh, previously a journal of film and feminism, which I really like. Um, and, and, and Cooper's kind of like bringing out these weird tensions and misses in, in the, in the story. So Alex and Larry are the DeVito and, uh, or the Schwarzenegger and DeVito character. And one of the thing, co- things Cooper is really bringing up, which I want to talk about more is how, there's a weird queerness to their relationship, you know, and a, the core relationship mm-hmm. of the movie is actually this queer relationship that can't quite be queer between DeVito and Schwarzenegger, which is also kind of the premise of twins, but there's like the fraternity issue in that. Um, yeah. So, so Julia Cooper writes, though Alex and Larry are supposedly performing this experiment of male pregnancy in the name and service of science, The importance of family and the sacredness of the child quickly supersede this narrative of medical discovery. Significantly, the intended demographic for this, quote, cure, the American woman, also recedes into the background of Alex's pregnancy and Larry's financial investment in the wonder drug. So, obviously sexist, but sexist in a kind of familiarly gay man kind of way, where it's like step aside women, like, we're much more interested in this relationship between these two men, which we can't quite call homosexual. Um, And then ultimately, Cooper argues that Junior's depiction of women is asinine, no doubt, and its valoration of the nuclear family is formulaic. But I wonder if the film allows, if only briefly, for the seeds of a new Hollywood masculinity to germinate. Reitman's Jr. doesn't herald a new moment in film history, but as fleeting as the film's subversive commentary may be, the image of a celebrated hulking body turned liminal, female, transsexual, 
and errant marks a shift in the mainstream's conception of the masculine. After the previous decades, hysteria and violent stigmas surrounding AIDS, the increased legislation of anti-abortion laws, and Reagan's unrelenting focus on family values, Schwarzenegger's pregnant belly suggests a much-needed queer departure. So I think one of the things that this essay is like bringing up is that there's a potentiality of this movie that mm-hmm. it doesn't get explored, but it's definitely there. And that's what I find fascinating about it is all the ways that it's like, it almost is like kind of like Shalama Firestone's a dialectic of sex, this like revolutionary utopian vision in which, you know, to be woman doesn't mean, you know, to be required to be coerced into birth, you know, in these mm-hmm, kind of like mm-hmm. Margaret Atwood, <laughs> like dystopian world or something like that. Like that men could be pregnant too, that, that men could share in this, in this labor. And that like, that from there, like who knows biology, gender, sex, all of these things could be kind of broken apart in these, um, yeah, I don't know. I would argue that the, the space that this movie makes for that, however small, is part of why it wasn't as successful. Like, the, the, whoever, whichever of these critics are talking about the sight gags, like, that's the thing of Schwarzenegger and DeVito. This is the tall one, that's the little fat one, you know? And like, and then like, Oh, Arnold Schwarzenegger freaking pregnant. You gotta be kidding me, man. Is like, like that you, you, you almost can like ve- hazily sort of picture. You, 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 if that's a SNS, if, ah, <laughs> if that's an SNL sketch, you know who's laughing at that sketch. You get the audience for that. But the fact that it's over a two hour movie. And that it has these moments of, of, you know, the description of it as fleeting is is nice. You know, these fleeting moments of transness, of liminality, of of queerness. You know. Let's just call it queerness, right? Because sure, sure. Um, even though it doesn't seem, I mean, this it's a little. It's 1994, and the fact that this is not weighing in necessarily, like, pro or anti-trans, we're not going to hold against this movie. And obviously, it would be framed much differently today. However, the scene where, like, Emma Thompson is like, well, we have to have sex, right, to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm -hmm. And Arnold Schwarzenegger is, you know, fully in drag, and they're having this, like, completely serious romantic scene and then they make out and they have mm-hmm. sex and he's still got like his earrings in and things like that but just mm-hmm. it lets those details just sit there it doesn't it isn't about the sight gag of it all it actually in those moments you're like not thinking about those things you know it's very not and that makes it very non-commercial i think yeah weirdly yeah. right yeah yeah and um and also Emma Thompson, like, there's a lot to be said about, like, Schwarzenegger wearing a dress or being so effeminate or 
crying and these kinds of things. But I really like that um, I had in my notes that she's basically doing like an impersonation of Hugh Grant, which, you know, she, she cast Hugh Grant as her love interest and sensibility, sense and sensibility. So I kind of have this like desire to imagine that she actually was impersonating Hugh Grant in this movie, but okay. Hugh Grant in what movie? Like four weddings or, you know, just the general four um, weddings. And I think that that would probably at the time that would have been the movie. I think that came out this year, or the year before. Gotcha. The Hugh Grant character. Yes, exactly. Basically. The capital T okay. Hugh Grant character. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she's, she's kind of tapping into that in this way that I really like. I mean, we only once see her wearing a dress. Oh, no, I guess twice, but, um, we don't see, she's usually wearing, um, you know, slacks and this dress shirt and even like the, like kind of, um, very nineties sweater vest, you know, that she's wearing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. She always has this ponytail. I mean, she's, she's being a King man. Like she's really, she's really hot and she's in a kind of subtle drag through this movie that I think, uh, is part of the charm also. It's just, it's just fucking with gender so much, you know? Sure. I mean, I, I thought it was interesting because I, I mean, I definitely see what you're saying about her outfits. I, I think I maybe just missed or was too young or was not clued in to, and I don't know. I don't think Emma Thompson was ever like a fucking, she was never like a bombshell movie star. You know, she was never like a Julia Roberts or a Jennifer Aniston or a whoever, like the, the sexy one. No, she was on the Meryl street trajectory or yes, 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 yes. So a sort of classy, like very classy. She's in these, these Shakespeare. So I did, I was weirdly like, man, it's weird how unsexed up she is in this movie. I was like, she's clearly very attractive, but like, gorgeous. She's not e- even in the mo- even in the movie when like, uh, when Arnold retrieves her shoe oh. after she flings it onto a table trying to get the toilet paper off the bottom of it. He rips the toilet paper off, but he puts her shoe back on. It's like, oh, this is clearly supposed to be like a sexy moment, but she's in like black pantyhose you don't see it's not like this sexy like i don't think a foot fetishist would get that much out of that moment like it's the shoe isn't especially beautiful her foot isn't especially visible i'm like this just looks like my mom putting her foot back in her shoe which is like fine but it's not like a like hubba hubba moment which i i found interesting well yeah but within the context of the film She's wearing a dress for the first time, right? Sure. uh, Totally, totally. So it's supposed to be this kind of like whatever, she's all that kind of moment. (laughs) She cleans up really hard and oh my gosh, you know. But what I love about that scene, and I want to get to this about the movie in general, but like um, a lot of it is about um, body dysmorphia, you know? And like... 
just these two characters are so uncomfortable in their own bodies. And that, and that scene is so interesting because neither of them have ever danced before and they decide right. to dance together. And then they're mm-hmm. like looking at the other people dancing and trying their best to, to be like them. But this is the first time in their whole lives they've ever felt compelled or asked another person to dance, you know, like they're just so uncomfortable in their own bodies. And, um, like you don't actually even have a sense of whether weirdly like Schwarzenegger has ever had sex before, you know, he gets pregnant. Sure. Like he kind of seems like like a virgin. Right. Sure. Which is impressive that that's even, that you can even like kind of squint your eyes and see that. Yeah, but that's the character that Alex is like, he he's clearly muscular and this like, whatever, human specimen, which is right. like an interesting right. trope with all of this, right? But, right? but, but, but he doesn't seem to understand any of that about himself. And um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, I just found that, I found their attraction to each other really interesting because of that. They both she's constantly like falling down and fumbling about and just is not very tactful in her body and um, has like the, the craft single cheese, like, or the toilet paper on her shoe. I mean, these are stupid details that are a little obvious, but, but the parallel between them is this discomfort, this bodily discomfort that they share, you know? For sure, there's discomfort. I just want to understand how it's dysmorphic. Well, it's that they that they don't. I mean, he, he doesn't understand his own sex appeal. For instance. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And dysmorphia, like uh, one version of it, is that you look in the mirror and you see something totally different than what your body is, right? But that's. That's not really the extent of it. It's it's really just this kind of discomfort and unknowingness and, and sense of detachment from your bodily existence, right? And having having this sense that yeah, being in a body is um yeah, uncomfortable in some way, right? Well, I think in that sense then the 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 biggest dysmorphic aspect of it that I kind of flagged to talk about is, and it, it, it carries over to Juno too, is the womb envy that Emma Thompson has in that scene that you're talking about when Arnold in drag is at the like, whatever, what, what do you call it? It's not treatment. It's just a weird little residential center for pregnant women, like a freaking nunnery almost. With Judy Collins. <laughs> Judy Collins is running it, which I love. Wait, who's Judy Collins? The, like, um, folk singer, you know, Judy Collins. Okay. All right. No, I'm not a, I'm not hip to Judy Collins. But Emma Thompson (laughs) is like, is, you know, is like at one point she's like, oh, men have taken so much away from us. Now they have to take, you know, basically the joy of pregnancy too. And, and then you hear like, you know, Danny DeVito's character be like, I hear pregnant women complain about pregnancy all the time. You would think that they would want us to take, you know, so it's like, well, is pregnancy 
hell or heaven that you know gets used to different to different argument effects yeah 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 that and, was a and jennifer scene. garner is also like sees juno's character as like you know oh you must be it's you're you're so lucky to get to carry this child whereas juno's like uh you're lucky you don't have to you know and so this sort of like that um you know the sort of narrative of like the barren woman and it's even more fucked up in junior because i told you this like in is inventing a different a like whole new type of assault because it is it genuinely is so fucked up that yeah the egg the egg in arnold's body is emma thompson's egg like it, yes danny devito stole it and put it there but like Holy fuck, dude. Like, if that happened in real life, you would just, like, if I were Emma Thompson, I would not be able to speak for, like, 12 hours and then would just go insane. And what do you do? You just let this effective stranger give birth to... It's... it's, it's well, they're... Okay. It's quite they're a violation. Not in a, it, is, it is a violation, but I would say, in defense of the movie, for the time... The fact that that actually becomes a a point of conflict between them and isn't just mm-hmm. like a neutralized plot point, okay, <laughs> you know, okay. is interesting. You know, sure, she actually sure. gets to have that moment of being totally outraged and saying it's violating, right? But then, I mean, I think that it it, it doesn't quite. I'm I'm not going to be like, oh, this is an A plus movie that totally understands itself. I'm I'm really trying. <laughs> I'm not trying to go there. I'm just saying it it has these really interesting elements um that I find I find provocative, okay? But that scene yeah. is complicated in fact and it needs an actress as good as Emma Thompson to to walk through it where she kind of processes it, she names it as a violation and then she decides to to move forward with this and and I think it it's he is a stranger but they've had these moments of intense connection and they have been over the ways that neither of them fit easily into like the gender roles that they've been assigned sure sure and that that's actually what clears up the space for her to even consider doing something with him or you know that mm-hmm. said, it has huge third act problems, okay? <laughs> it's got huge first and second act problems. Okay, but the third act is the worst, where it comes in and it's, you know, the family form is going to cure all of these sure, sure. all of these issues, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it wipes away this issue that you bring up of consent and you know, her egg being right. stolen, right? Right. The fact that they then commit to being in a capital F family, right? Mm-hmm. Seem yeah, seems hyper corrective. And we don't need any plot development of that at all. They've just they've kind of just decided that they understand what that means. And they right. move into it. Whereas like a better movie would be like these are these are people who don't just have body dysmorphia but lots of issues around their own gender 
where then they're going to go into this relationship as a kind of experiment, you know, around that too. Instead of it's, instead it's this complete affirmation. Well, she's going to be the mother, right? And he's going to be the father. Right, 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 right. Um, but I don't know. I'll forgive it for that because I just think it just like, it brings up all of these crazy problems and these really takes these huge risks and it doesn't know the, what the fuck it's doing with itself at all. But just the ways in which it's like, it's kind of just bringing into gender or into genre, excuse me. It's like, it's kind of sci-fi. It's kind of a bromance. Then it's kind of like mm-hmm. a family movie. <laughs> it's like right. a lot of weird things at once. And I find it, I find it pretty fascinating. There's a point where you're like, this could become basically like planet of the apes with like the monkeys <laughs> and the, right. and the research right. facility too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, there's mm-hmm. so many things going on in it and it's just it's just you know kind of this bubbling pot frothing and and i just kind of enjoy the chaos of it like it it, i just find it really hilarious and there's just so many throwaway movies from this time that don't have anything complicated going on in them you know sure totally i just find it so much more compelling on paper than watching it like even the things we're talking about now, like the plot points, the connections between Arnold and Emma Thompson, like we talk about them like having these moments of, uh, you know, romantic moments and stuff. They don't happen at the exact right times in the story. They're just, they're slightly off in these little ways where it's like, so the ultimate version of what we were trying to talk about before is The Room. Like an unintentionally just absurd, funny movie. You know, there's like much more mainstream versions of that. And I don't even need this to be the room. But when I explain to a friend who's a little younger and didn't know what Junior was, I was like, dude, Arnold Arnold Schwarzenegger gets pregnant. They were like, what? And like that reaction is so much purer than their reaction would be from watching this movie. This movie I found weirdly disappointing in how kind of tonally the music does a lot of work. It feels like a John Hughes, like home alone soundtrack or something where it's like, you know, just like people walking down hallways and stuff. It like weirdly papers over it where you're like every few minutes you have to shake your head and be like, Oh, fucking wait a second. They injected a baby and into just his like open belly cavity. And we're just <laughs> taking that all for granted, you know? I know, I and know. Like, like, and I wanted it to be so much more chaotic, so much more weird. And I found mm. almost all, I found it kind of boring in some ways, which I was like, I can't believe I'm finding this boring. <laughs> but like, because it is the things you're saying and like the things that Julia Cooper wrote about it, like these are interesting things but I just find them almost completely to be on paper. Mm. Yeah, I I hear that. I hear that. It, maybe it's just kind of washed up at this point. But I think thinking about the time, how many opportunities this movie had to be super homophobic. Let's not even talk about sure. transphobic. Sure. But sure. how it, 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 I think there's one scene where, um, 
like Danny DeVito and and Schwarzenegger are kind of misinterpreted as gay, right? But other yeah. than that, it doesn't really uh I mean it could make that joke every single scene and it doesn't. Yeah. And instead yeah. what it's doing is there's just like moments where like Danny DeVito is touching Arnold Schwarzenegger in these like Mm -hmm. (laughs) really like they're not erotic but it's just like intimate right they have this intimacy and it doesn't need to really explain it or name what that but it's just so insistent on that being like a a core element um i i like that i like how i like how it does that and um and i like that it resists the easy and at times like just thinking back to 1994 how homophobic think about like ace ventura or something like that like there's just really really fucked up anti-gay anti-queer anti-trans anti-feminist movies happening and so i guess that Maybe it is an autobiographical thing for me, too, is I I watched this in 1994 and I watched this while I was pregnant. I have like a this is now almost 30 year relationship I have with this movie. You know what I mean? But I think I'm surprised at the ways that it it uh, that it's it it very weirdly holds up, especially like, okay, Schwarzenegger, like. What happened to him afterwards, politically and all? <laughs> it's just—it's sure, actually yeah. really eerie about this film. I called it a film, not a movie. Are you impressed? Yeah, I'm very impressed. <laughs> it is. It's high art. What I was interested in too is comparing these movies. Juno, I found to be far more politically reactionary, far more interested in. Like what it means to to be biologically reproductive, um, mm-hmm. than than Juno or than Junior, excuse me. Like I found Junior in the way that it doesn't really know what it's doing with itself to actually be freed up of some of these um, family ideology moments that come up in Junior. Yeah. Well, because they all, I mean... Or Juno. <laughs> both movies... I know, right? Sorry. <laughs> both movies at the end end with a very much, like, reification of the traditional family. So that's a wash, right? But Junior is way messier in its first couple acts with what it does than Juno is. Because the the Juno's not messy at all. It's just this character of Juno thinking she's reacting against thinking she's rebelling but in the process of rebelling like still is wanting to give her baby to this very well off quote nice couple y- you know it, it whereas yeah junior is just like you know even the fact that it's like the shit's illegal that they're doing you know and 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 Arnold Schwarzenegger like keep you know he agrees with his buddy to stop taking these meds and he just fucking keeps taking them like he's doing like yeah really fucking weird shit absolutely so is that what both of these movies are about is that 
is the heart of Juno, my body, my choice. That is certainly the heart of Junior. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. But Juno, who the fuck knows, man? Is it about fingernails? I just found that so disappointing. Yeah. I Well, the problem with Juno, it too, is like this character is so fucking smart and clever, but like she didn't make Polly wear a condom? Like what? Like the, she and her friend immediately know all of the, the, you know, the two big places to call to get abortions. But did the condom break? Like it, it just feels like eh, you're asking us to take a big leap here. Whereas Junior starts so absurd. It's like, yeah, the leap is we're inserting a baby into basically you know, the spots around Arnold's intestines. So you're either on board or not. You he know? does not have a uterus. <laughs> yeah, a, yeah. There is a leap here. It's like, he doesn't have a uterus, but if you think about it, women are the have same size bellies as men and they blow up. So maybe men got basically a uterus's worth of space in there, you know? Yeah. It's much more honest about the leap of faith it's asking you to take. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I'm wondering with our discovery, which before we even, you know, I, we hadn't even discovered this before when we chose to do this double feature. The Reitman-Reitman. The Reitman-Reitman connection. Are these films family in some way? Mm, are they? Yes. In the same kind of genealogy. Are they? Yeah. Do do they? Yeah, they are. Because they're about they? these How? like unlikely pregnancy. They're pregnancy movies, right? But they're sure. they're not nine months with Hugh Grant and Julianne Moore, right? It's like these marginal, um, incorrect pregnancies, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. That are still weirdly like pro pregnancy um but they're about the yeah they're about these like unlikely pregnant characters right yeah. the unlikelihood is what brings them together right totally totally but i think that what's interesting in distinction okay so junior if the problem i have with junior is that there's something magical and innate about being pregnant that somehow convinces him by the end of his first trimester that he has to continue. Mm-hmm. And that leads to this like psychological transformation that he experiences, right? Where he's suddenly right. in touch with his emotions and all these things, right? Juno is saying almost the opposite is that it was this kind of anticlimax that, that Juno is not actually maybe transformed by, but gets to go back to normal afterward. Right, which is that radical in some way to be like, hey, pregnancy isn't this magical thing that that transforms everyone. I don't know. Yeah, I have a hard time weighing in on this because I, while I think that being pregnant does not make you a mother, obviously, mm-hmm. like I don't, to, to be the the pregnant person and to do that work of carrying a fetus and to be a gestator 
does not render you a mother, like thinking back on shoplifters, right? Right. Um, neither of these movies are saying that, right? They're instead thinking about the transformative or non-transformative experience of being pregnant. And that I actually think is really important to bring up. Like, I think that being pregnant is transformative, but it doesn't need to make you maternal. It just literally opens up your brain to human history in a way that other people don't Mm -hmm. get to have, right? I just find that I don't really buy that Juno is transformed in that way. I don't think so either. I think it's she's totally nonchalant about it and things like right. that. But I think it would be more interesting if it held that space for her to actually grow up through the experience or or figure something out and to for it to be an epiphany, but for that epiphany not to be motherhood, right? Sure. But I yeah, think absolutely. I think there's something also misogynist about being like, oh, pregnancy, no big deal, which I don't think that Juno quite does. But that's the kind of right. moment like when Junior was coming out, like, you know, um, I'm just thinking of all of these like sitcoms where we knew the actresses were pregnant. We're supposed to pretend that we don't know that or something like that. Like there's mm-hmm. this kind of interesting thing where we're not really supposed to I don't know quite what I'm trying to say right there but it's just it's like I think we need to be able to acknowledge that pregnancy is transformative that it's eye-opening that it is a bodily labor-based experience that people have that opens up their experiential understanding of like fucking human history like that's how i felt after i gave birth i was like wow that's what it takes for like humans to keep going you know and like knowing that like in my body right i'm not Mm -hmm. even talking about motherhood or whatever but just like having gone through that experience is a huge fucking deal and however you want to understand that in ideological terms and in relation to the family, like it is a really big deal, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that junior, even though what it says that transformation has to mean is, is like about masculinity and femininity, which is definitely um, a weak point of the film, right? It's still like, open to pregnancy being this site of transformation. And what I think, yeah, I think the like cynical hipster dumb of Juno, what's, what's most disappointing about that is that it doesn't, doesn't get to look at what a big deal it is to be pregnant. And, you know, like she says in 30 weeks, we could all just think of this as this thing that happened. I think that that's ultimately what the movie thinks pregnancy can be. And, and, it doesn't disprove her in that moment, you know? Yeah, I think that Juno, the character, and the movie wants to be very nonchalant about heavy topics, which which is, you know, it could work. There, There's a moment early on where Juno's just walking around and throws a big licorice rope over, you oh, know, God. after she's, after she's, 
pregnant. She, you know, she she's taking her third pregnancy test. She throws this big licorice rope over a tree branch and like pretends to tie a noose and then and like sort of fake hang herself and then she bites through it. And it's like, you know, this like, oh, this is a character who is this cavalier about suicide. That's totally fine to portray a character like that. For sure. But the the movie itself never goes beyond that coolness you know which is just like why should i fucking give a shit like why should i give a shit if like the whole point of this is to like be cool or the whole point of this is to be nonchalant it's like it it's a takes a real fucking balancing act to give a not to show a nonchalant character i, I can't i can't really think of many like full on nonchalant movies that i like you know, it's just like, I need to, you to fucking care about something and to just portray this character as like, yeah, and then she does this and then she does that. It's like, whatever, man. And, and, and your, your, you know, bookmarking of like hipsterdom feels really spot on too, because in 2023, people our age, fucking millennials and, and, and Gen X people still call, well-dressed culturally plugged in uh either either performatively poor or actually poor people still call them hipsters but hipsters they're not hipsters hipsters don't exist anymore hipsters like if we're still using hipsters it's because we're fucking out of touch and we remember juno and that's what we that's what we represent like i mean it was already out of date as a term right well, but they're but, from but Norman Mailer in the sixties. Sure, sure. His sure, idea sure. of like the quote white Negro. I mean, it's always been a really complicated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and like certainly people didn't claim it in the two thousands, but you definitely were used to hearing. Right, it was purely like, derogatory. Oh, fucking hipsters. Yeah, exactly. And I think Juno is fucking hipster in the worst way. Yes, I think it is. I think it's it's a depoliticizing aesthetic. It's about coping and cutesyism and and defanging critique, you know. And it's just so late G.W. Bush era to me. Yeah. You know, it's like this fatigue of okay, we're raised by boomers who are telling us all about the Vietnam War and how they, like, stood up to it, and then, like, Iraq happens, and all those same boomers are saying, like, let's blow up this shit, and I don't know. I went to a protest, and my dad and I got into a huge fight over it, and um, I got pretty cynical about the 60s you know in that moment and and that was also i think key to our generation as we've been kind of romanticizing this period of revolutionary uprisings and then like the second that we have our own you know similar opening we just kind of fucking blow it on and like by the Juno soundtrack and you know <laughs> right. I think that that there's this kind of anti-climax that happens around like 06 07 
politically and Juno is just, yeah, paradigmatic. Yeah, I mean, my my feeling about politics at that time, and for a very long time after, fortunately not anymore, was, <sighs> I wish this would just go away. Like, why do we have to think about this? I wish this would just go away. I'm not really into news. I'm not really into politics. It's a, it's a, it's a hobby I can choose to be into or not, you know? And so, like, that was, yeah, yeah. So, so it is totally representative of the times in that way. And, and in a way, it's, it is, it is more interesting and hopeful to watch Junior. And even though it ends wrong, so to speak, it's like, damn, there were some moments where this shit could have been fucking crazy, where this shit could have been, like, radical, you know? And that's more exciting than fucking home skillet. This is all I'm trying to say in the comparison is that there's something actually, like, I would love to see a remake of Junior. Sure, sure, sure. It would, Maybe it'd be yeah. too risky, but there's stuff there to tap risky. into. I think it could. I think it could be very claptery, like mm. uh, trans, uh, like trans in the most representative, performative uh, way. Yeah, that, it it would have yeah. to weigh in on things it doesn't have to weigh in on in the moment. But I, d- I guess that is part of what I'm trying to historicize about it. And what the the Cooper essay is also doing is like, this was a profoundly phobic period in history. Mm-hmm. Not post-AIDS, but in the imagine like the historical yeah. imaginary of AIDS, still post-AIDS, I think it's yet to be the year of the highest fatality rate for AIDS, but Mm -hmm. right. Like this, this interesting, like, you know, nebulous period of the early nineties. And this is (laughs) as much as it, like it captures that confusion. There's just something very redeeming to me, at least about it's bravery, you know, and that it, that it, It's like, you know what, if it is just about the sight gag of Arnold Schwarzenegger being pregnant, so be it. But we're not going to get all this like low hanging fruit of all these gay jokes that we could be doing or, you know, these kind of like, it just refuses to go in certain directions that having lived through this period, I, I just feel it in my bones. Like it, it really could have gone there. <laughs> Yeah. It doesn't. And I like that. I, that must have been when I watched it on VHS tape when I was like nine, you know, what I thought was, whether or not at a conscious level, but what I was kind of engaging with, with this weird movie. Because it's very unlikely. I, I didn't like Arnold Schwarzenegger or anything like that. Like, I didn't like this genre, but for some reason, it just really captured my imagination or I don't know. Well, speaking of genre, is it time for the genre reveal? Shall we start with Juno? Yes, absolutely. Who goes first? I- I'll go first mm-hmm. for 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 both of these. Mm. Or or not? I don't know. Who cares? Go. Ju- yeah. Tell me what what you think, Juno. 
My genre for Juno is hoodie core. Hoodie core, okay. I think I think I think a hoodie is is ultimately it 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 screams rebellion. It sh- it it whispers rebellion. It's it says, "Look at me, I'm so different." But actually, everybody wears hoodies. Hoodie is it, <laughs> and I say this as someone who's had many hoodies that I've loved. A hoodie is a coward's garment. Okay, mm. Juno is hoodie core. What do you think? A coward's garment. Wow, I love it. Okay, my genre reveal for Juno is should have been a Jordan Peele movie, specifically. Okay. Get out. <laughs> okay. It should so There is a point where I was watching it where I was like if if the Jason Bateman character was like the Bradley Whitford character. Right, 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 right. In Get Out, this would have been so much better. Okay. So then so the official title of the genre is should have been Get Out. Should have been a Jordan Peele movie. I just really okay. feel that Jordan Peele could have handled this better. Okay. Should have been a Jordan Peele movie. And fucked with how it's all about especially. whiteness, too. I mean, we didn't really yeah. get into that, but it is a very much a movie about whiteness. And yeah, just should have been a Jordan Peele movie. Okay. I like it. What about Junior? Well, you're going first for that, right? Okay. Yeah. Um... You're not going to like it, but my genre, my, the name of the genre of Junior is, who is this for? <laughs> and the answer is you. The answer is <laughs> me. It's for me. Uh, but I still maintain this is a zero quadrant movie. It is e- even the ways in which it is for you. It is for you on paper. But the experience of watching this was, unfortunately, I, I can't have wished this to be more chaotic more. I really wanted to enjoy watching Junior, and I just thought it was a drag, man. So, Junior, who is this for? Hmm. What do you, what's your take? It's just a lot of things at once, but I want to call it a body dysmorphia bromance sci-fi. Okay, okay. Just just smash them all together. I just want well, cuz that's what it is. It's just all these things that are smashed up together, but Mhm. Okay. But I was thinking about okay, well, I watched this when I was like going through puberty. I watched this mm-hmm. when I was pregnant. The times in my life when this was really resonating were peak body dysmorphic moments for me. And mm-hmm. I think that is really a big part of the appeal. I mean, I, I struggle with that. It's something I, I struggle with, right? But like yeah. the way in which um and yeah, I guess that, that 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 describes the pleasure I experience watching it is just um Do you experience euphoria? I do, yeah. I think there's something I actually, Dave, I cried while I watched Junior this last week. Love it. I love it. Which part? Um, A number of times. 
Um, I cried when he's starting to, when he's watching the um, commercial and he's Mm -hmm. crying, you know? Mm In that case, it was because I related so hard as somebody, I cry during commercials and trailers, like, often. It's really Mm -hmm. easy for me to cry. And so, it was kind of like the self-caricature, the holding a mirror up to me, kind of, you know, Uh via Schwarzenegger. I was really enjoying that. Um, In the end, when the baby baby comes, you know, like, I was also Mm -hmm. crying. Okay. And and it's like it's like a really pleasurable kind of crying where I'm laughing at myself the entire time. <laughs> like you know, like I watched Schindler's List or something. I'll definitely cry during that, you know? Yeah. Sure. Maybe. Yeah. But it's a euphoric crying with this where I'm like how absurd is it as somebody who's gone through pregnancy that I'm like relating to Arnold Schwarzenegger? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like it's the I'm crying out of this like sense of relief because it's so absurd the feeling of feelings of identification, the feelings of discomfort that are being brought up and like brought to the surface. You know, I I, I just found it really cathartic to watch Junior again. (laughs) So I guess the answer is it really is just made for me, this movie. Yeah. Yeah, maybe somebody I still else loves it. My t- my title, but yeah. I look at me. Um, I'm actually crying while I'm talking about it, Dave. Like, <laughs> it's not okay. It's not okay. What's going on with me? Um, but I would be really curious if other people have had this kind of experience with Junior, because I kind of feel like just what you're you're, you're bringing up with your your gen- genre reveal, like. Who this movie is for is surprising. Sure, sure, totally. It's not for who it's supposed to be for, whoever the right, hell that right. might be. Yes, yes, And exactly. <laughs> who it ends up being for is really cool. <laughs> yeah, is I don't know. Marxist feminist maybe uh, scholars. Or maybe it's just me. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, I think that's a great note to close on. Yeah. Um, we should say. We love. Does he say in your in your mind? Does he say when he's talking to Danny DeVito's wife, who I thought he actually had way better chemistry with than anyone else in the movie? Their chemistry together was amazing. Just I love those. She's a great actress. Does he? Does he say? Does Arnold say? I love meats and cuisines, or does he say I love mixing cuisines? I just love mixing cuisines. Mixing, yeah, I love I that it. line. It's it is great. I really wanted it to be meats and cuisines, as if meats are somehow separate from cuisines. But either way, we love mixing cuisines. We like mixing cuisines. We like mixing cuisines. We like. You're not going to do a Schwarzenegger impersonation. I right? am trying to fucking take us out here, and you are you are dragging us back into oh. the podcast. All right. <laughs> well, that there's is, a Schwarzenegger that, line you could do to end this, but whatever. What is it? Come on, don't make me do it. My body, my choice. What? No, we'll be back. You're talking about no. like well, other. 
Yeah, like the most famous. I'll be back. No. To leave the gasoline. Hasta la vista. (laughs) Well, you did it. That's it. Join us next time. Thank you. This is a trap. You trapped me. Bye bye. (laughs) Ha 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 ha.